Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Episode 118 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We, as uh, the last few weeks, have three cases today, and you can expect that for the foreseeable future. Also, as the Supreme Court gets going, we may occasionally, as we've done in the past, have special episodes on some of those cases with those that argued it or those that have been involved with it at times. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for Pat and I to understand the subject matter, but we'll bring in those experts as we have in the past. The first case today is from the Illinois 4th District, Lee versus Wayland. Our second case today is Chicago Sun-Times versus Cook County Health and Hospital System from the Illinois Supreme Court. And the third case is also from the Illinois Supreme Court, Walworth Investments LG LLC versus Mu Sigma Inc. Let's turn to our first case. The Illinois Appellate Court 4th District recently affirmed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the defendants based upon causation and a finding that the plaintiff was more than 50% at fault, and now in Lee versus Weiland, it is invited to do so again. The trial court entered summary judgment in favor of a motorist and against the plaintiff, a 12-year-old girl who was injured uh, when she was struck by the vehicle while crossing mid-block between a party where a house was taking place in her own home. Counsel for the appellant contended that there was a question of fact as to causation, and comparative fault because a jury should decide whether a reasonably prudent driver in the defendant's position should have, number one, realized that there was a party going on at the house that children might have been attending. Number two, that the plaintiff testified that she was waved down by another motorist who was in front of the defendant, that the vehicle in front of the defendant was parking in a no parking area. And number three, that the plaintiff acted reasonably despite admitting she ran across the street, though she had an interesting definition of running. Pat, tell us about an oral argument in this case. Thanks, Dan. In the case that uh, Dan mentioned at the beginning where the 4th District made an evaluation, um, affirmed the evaluation of fault and causation by the uh, circuit court was in the Wilson versus Beasley case. This was the case where the uh, walk-in freezer fell onto the, uh, the plaintiff, and they said, stand, you know, trying to play a center fielder for a walk-in freezer, and you kind of get what you deserve. Um, and uh, this situation is not dissimilar from that. So the young lady is is crossing between the two, uh, crossing the, across the street that's described as variably as between residential, if you're the plaintiff, and now a major thoroughfare that connects the two ends of Bloomington, if you're the, uh, if you're the defendant. And so there's a party at this one house and there's apparently a lot of cars parked, but there's some activity on the side of the house, but most of the activities in the back of the house, there's a real question as to whether this driver defendant can see any of these things. And and the uh, plaintiff got some close questioning about, well, do you have any evidence of what could be seen or not seen from the vantage point where he was at? Uh, And she didn't. 
uh, you know, she was relying on inference, and that inference seems to be a bridge too far for the justices. Uh, and then, so then you have this car that was in front of the defendant vehicle that he apparently went around, that he goes around, and it's when he's going around that car that the impact with the girl occurs. And it's, she claims that she is waved on. Now, but the driver of the van that she that was in front of the defendant and the pastor both say there was no waving going on to tell her to go across the street. Um, she insists there was. And the question, because, you know, the plaintiff says, well, hold it. There's a question of fact here as to whether she was waved on or not. I'm not sure what that has to do with uh, her not looking because the witnesses also say that she didn't look both ways. Um, she, of course, says that she did. Again, is that a question of fact that's going to defeat, summary, that should defeat summary judgment? I, I, I can see the position of the plaintiff, but you're crossing a street mid-block, darting out between a car. There's no evidence that the, plaintiff, that the defendant was speeding. There's no evidence that he was intoxicated or otherwise impaired. Or distracted. Um, he pulls around a car that's stopping from what he can... I said, or, di or distracted. No, yeah, evidence he was distracted. He was on his phone or something. Yeah, nothing nothing like that. So you don't really have... It's a difficult situation for the, for the plaintiff in this case. The one saving grace, the one issue she didn't really bring up or argue that strenuously was, hold it, she's 12. Does she have a lower standard of care or is she held to the adult standard of care? And that's where the issue arises, whether the defendant should have known there were children in the area. And there really isn't good evidence that he should have known there were children in the area. Um, and I'm not sure a 12-year-old has to be treated any different than an adult when they're crossing the street. 12-year-old, a normal 12-year-old, um, assuming no disability or handicap, you know, should be able to cross the street uh, and held to the same duty of care that a uh, adult is held to for the crossing of the street. A younger child, perhaps not. I'm not sure where you draw the line, but 12 certainly be, seems to be a place where you can draw the line that you should be able to find your way across the street. And if you fail to do so by failing to look or running or something along these lines, then you're going to be held to the adult standard of care. Um, and the question is, what is the, the standard of care for this driver who is going, you know, he, the one issue is, well, at one point he says he's going like, 25 or 30 and another point he says he's going 15 or 20 he gives some inconsistent statements in that regard but either way it's lower than the speed limit there's no evidence that he ever said that he was speeding now if he was doing 50 in this in this area well, that's a different kettle of fish um uh, but that's not the that's not the evidence even the most favorable evidence to the plaintiff doesn't have him going um at a high rate of speed or a speed that's inappropriate for the uh, for the area um, so what, what's the interesting, the reason why we selected this case is because I, it is very rare to get summary judgment on causation and comparative fault. And I'd, I'd be interested to see who the trial judge was. They didn't mention who the circuit judge was. I'll be interested to see if it happens to be the same judge who decided the, uh, yeah. the other case, uh, that we talked about, which was in a different county. No. So it can't be the same judge. It can't be the same judge because it was in a different county entirely. So no, it can't be. So I, I just, the fourth district has been very interesting on these negligence cases recently with all this, the waft of uh, 
open and obvious cases and now these comparative fault cases um, and, and deciding them on summary judgment. We'll see if they affirm here, but I, I think the plaintiff's got a difficult, uh, a difficult path to victory um, where you have a 12-year-old that darts out in front of a car and gets hit because that's what happens when you dart out in front of a car. Uh, it doesn't go well for the human, uh, whether that human is a 12-year-old girl or, a, or an adult. Dan, what are your thoughts? Pat, I agree with you. And, you know, one of the things that was mentioned uh, was that uh, one of the questions was whether uh, he should have realized there was a party going on. And again, I, I don't know. I, I drive down my street all the time. Sometimes there's parties. I notice a few extra cars. But, I mean, I, you know, it's not it's not like it's a school or a... a Does it mean right? it's total right. And And, uh, you know, I mean... So I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a tough hurdle here for the plaintiff. Like you said, I think it's, uh, it's been an interesting uh, fourth district in terms of some of the cases that they've been uh, deciding and open and obvious and now in these uh, uh, causation summary judgments. So we'll, we'll see what happens on, the, on appeal here. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's important to note. I mean, this is not the end of these cases. If you know, they, per, they certainly have the ability to, uh, for further review by the Supreme Court. So, but it's just a trend that we're seeing in this particular court with these, um, and they're right. not all defense friendly. Um, these, uh, this is not a one way direction, but it's this development we're seeing a lot of these in the, in this particular court, um, and uh, them them having oral arguments. So we have something right. to talk about on the show. Thank. you. Thank you, Fourth District. Keep having these arguments. You, you, you've saved us. Exactly. Us, so thank you. Um, so with that, we'll take our first break and, uh, and and come back with our second segment. We're back for segment two of episode 118 of the Podium and Panel podcast and turning to the Illinois Supreme Court. Is information of walk-in gunshot victims at a public hospital exempted from Freedom of Information Act disclosure? Easy for me to say. That is the issue to be resolved when the Illinois Supreme Court decides Chicago Sun-Times versus Cook County Health and Hospital System. The appellate court reversed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the government by the circuit court, and the government appealed to the Supreme Court. The newspaper sought records and the government objected, claiming that information sought is exempted and protected, exempted from FOIA and protected by HIPAA, that de-identification is not sufficient or permitted under HIPAA, and that the only way to produce the information without creating a record that does not otherwise exist, a duty the the government does not have under FOIA, is to produce a heavily redacted record that is also not permitted under HIPAA, and that the hospital does not actually does not actually record the requested information and as that information is not required to be logged. There's a distinction between logging gunshot victims who come in accompanied by police and those that are coming unaccompanied. They have to report the former. They don't have to report the latter. This led to this last issue led to the argument that the search is unduly burdensome to which the plaintiff asserted that that argument was waived because the government did not timely respond within the first five days of the receiving the FOIA request and did not raise the issue until the briefing on the summary judgment motion. The scope of FOIA and the protections of HIPAA are at stake in this case. The government asserted that a person should not have fewer privacy rights simply or privacy protection simply because 
they went to a public hospital, in this case, Stroger, that is subject to FOIA as opposed to having gone to a private hospital like the University of Chicago or Northwestern. Uh, Dan, tell us about the Sure, account. Pat, and you explained some of the things at, at ramifications here. Um, we've talked uh, at times on this show about sometimes arguments being overstrident, and I, uh, my listening to this and, and looking at it and having some experience in privacy, I think that the th think the arguments at time by the uh, state were a bit uh, too much. The fact that you can't even look at these records because that would be a violation per se of HIPAA. I mean, that can't can't be the rule. Um, the uh, a couple of a couple of well, you have to be, if you're looking at medical records, you're looking at medical records. You have to be looking at them for a proper purpose. And I, I there have been actions brought on I, the, that. I, 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 I agree, but but again, um, it can't be that that simply looking at them uh, is a per se violation because there would be all kinds of things. I mean, the, the, the custodians of records are, are asked for things all the time in these cases. Uh, you, you might be looking at these records for all kinds of things that you find, right, you know, information. But in any event, um, there's a big battle over what could be produced here. Um, and the appellee conceded... Uh, you know, at, at oral argument, uh, and, and apparently in some of the re uh, reply briefs, that uh, they um, uh, were just looking for the year. And, and you know, there's a whole discussion. I think Justice Tice uh, really was trying to get at, you know, what exactly are you asking for and what, what's the purpose of the information? If you get records that just have a year, how are you going to tie those to the... There's two pieces here, as you said, Pat. The first is, did someone come in with that unaccompanied by a police officer? And secondly, when did that get reported? What year did that get reported to the police? So a couple of background pieces uh, that, I, that I, th I think might be helpful here uh, in terms of, of some of the uh, statute. So uh, the FOIA statute has at, at C5, it has a definition of private information. And what is that? It's unique identifiers, including a person's social security number, driver's license number, employee identification number, biometric, personal financial, passwords, um, also includes home address and personal license plate. Um, uh, and, and, and then it talks about uh, when compiled without possibility of attribution to any person. Um, there is there is methodology in HIPAA uh, for uh, information to be de-identified, as would have been the case here. Uh, the whole purpose, as we've talked about with BIP and all these other privacy regimes, Pat, is to protect the individual from being disclosed, right? And uh, what what HIPAA uh, says for de-identification is they have to get rid of names, geographics, all elements of dates except for the year uh, for, for the individual. And, and again, the argument of, uh, of the appellant here, uh, of the appellee here, is that year alone, there's thousands of people that walk in that this happens every year. Um, and so just disclosing the year is not going to, there's no way that you could identify any single person that Dan Cotter went into the thing. Um, but what is interesting and what you talked about, Pat. But they did concede, but they did concede they wanted the, but they did concede they wanted the record. Right. But they'd be redacted and it would just have a year. Yeah. Redacted, but the record. Well, but, but again, uh, in a lot of privacy, uh, in a lot of privacy uh, cases, um, 
if it's de-identified, I mean, the whole, every framework that I'm aware of has de-identification that that's kind of a, a protection, right? Again, because you could, you could provide data in this uh, instance, the records, again, I would just have a year and nothing else. So it wouldn't tie to any individual, any, any date or time. Um, and that was part of the argument too, because I think, you know, the, the, the sometimes in this case, uh, when they originally filed their FOIA request, they did want date and time and, and all kinds of other information. Um, so I think that's problematic from their standpoint because there is this, this privacy protection. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I think, uh, like I said, the, the, uh, the, the appellee here, um, uh, justice Tice was asking a lot of questions, uh, about, uh, you know, the, the fact that it's not required, uh, to me that the strongest position of the, of the, of the hospital system here would have been just to say that out front, right. It's, and, and it seems like that's the strongest position they have here is, is look, we're not required to keep it. So we don't keep it. And so that we, we don't have a, an obligation to dig through every record. Right. And, and then you get into the, whether, whether or not the custodians could look at it for this purpose. Um, there are, again, there, there are, uh, 12 public reasons for why, uh, why, uh, uh, data can be disclosed under HIPAA. Uh, I'm not sure that any of them, uh, hit here when required by law, public health activities. So there, there's, uh, uh, I mean, arguably, that's one of the uh, one of the reasons under HIP, well, pub, uh, public health activities. Again, this is the public hospital system, right? And so, you you could make, you know, if there's some tie into there. So, and there's some other exceptions, right, for uh, studies and other things and safety of the communities. So, uh, maybe you could tie it into there. Um, it was it was really hard to tell. I think from for moral argument. Uh, how this is going to land. And the reason I say that is because uh, the appellant, there was a lot of questions uh, about no definition of medical records, not, that it's not, not in FOIA. Um, uh, something, you know, uh, uh, one of the justices asked if there was a piece of it, something extracted as a medical record. And, and the Cook County argued that it, that wouldn't even a small piece um, uh, because of the sensitivity. Uh you know, again, this this, this uh, case was decided on summary judgment, right? So it was disposed of on summary judgment. Uh, we you you had uh, posted on the appellate uh, had reversed the original decision, Pat, um, finding for uh, the county. So I think it's going to be an interesting case. Um, uh, like I said, uh, you know, uh, it, it, this is purely de-identified. De um, I'm not, I'm not sure that HIPAA pro prohibits every single instance of a disclosure of data. Uh, when you think about it, I mean, uh, we, we've we've done cases, I think the Indiana case and some other cases where there was some reporting of some HIPAA data in the aggregate and stuff, again, for reporting and for assessment of uh, all kinds of things. Um, the, the biggest question I had here, you know, and it's not germane to the, the privacy and HIPAA questions, is, is what the Sun Times expects to show with this, or what, where the hell they're going with this, you know, article. I mean, so, so you have a thousand people that come in that are unattended by police, and only 750 get reported to the police. Okay. Well, I think where they're going with it is that you can't rely upon the gunshot yeah. numbers. 
and that there's this diff because they're not required to report these walk-ins. We need to find out how many are so we know how many people are actually being shot. And since we can't get that information from Chicago or Northwestern based on HIPAA or based on FOIA, the only place we can get this from is Stroger. And so this is where we can get it and then we can extrapolate from there. There are a lot more gunshot victims that are what are really being reported and, and violence is actually worse than what's being reported and I think there's a good reason to believe that people um, would go in and not want to involve the police for the same reasons they don't they don't they don't report uh, who was sh- who was shooting in the first instance. Right. Um, they they, they want to stay away and not involve. Just just like a, just like there's a so, lot you know. One thing I want to make. I was going to say just like in a lot of instances where there's where there's no yeah, witnesses, right, and nobody even though there's people involved, it's for the same reason, right? There could be. A rival, you know, some 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 just bad stuff going on, and right, you you go to the hospital, you get fixed, and you, you know, right, you don't want to re- go report that for a lot of reasons. You're not interested. In, you're not in, yeah, exactly. That's right. One thing I want to make clear is I think you when you read the rule, uh, the exemption C five in the statute, it specifically says medical records as one of the exemptions, and I. I I agree that I, I don't know why they didn't raise the do unduly burdensome argument from the very it, beginning uh, as their first in addition their first objection in addition to the in addition to the exemption itself and the FOIA objection. Uh, but it it pet these are plainly medical right. records. But 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 uh, um, as I mentioned, there's the exemption under C five, so it does say medical records. But then it says, except as otherwise provided by law or when compiled without possibility of attribution to any person. And again, if you're compiling these records and mailing them out with just years. But but in any event, although, I, you know, the argument, if you're the Cook County, would be they're not compiled. And that that means they're right, that this would be us. You know, the compiling is when you're bringing the records in. But we'll see what we'll see what the state does with this. Exactly. So with that, we'll take our, our next break and come back with Walworth, Walworth versus Mu Sigma. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Panel podcast, and we're dealing with the third case. Can a fiduciary contract around alleged fraud through a reliance clause and a release clause in a stock repurchase agreement? That and whether the reliance clause is ambiguous are the issues to be decided when the Illinois Supreme Court decides Walworth Investments LG LLC versus Mu Sigma Inc. The plaintiff and investment vehicle of the Ryan family invested in a data analytics company and then repurchased its shares at a 600% profit. Five years later, they filed suit claiming that the founder of the company had misrepresented the value of the company when he told insiders the company was going to experience explosive growth while telling the plaintiff that only steady growth was likely. The circuit court resolved the case on a series of motions on the pleadings and on summary judgment, but the appellate court reversed, 
describing it at oral argument and then the opinion as a reverse Bernie Madoff scheme. And we covered that when it was uh, at the appellate level. The contract requires application of Delaware law and the oral argument released a significant divergence on what Delaware law is on this point. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this very interesting case. So the more interesting case you have, the uh, higher priced and higher powered lawyers you get. <laughs> and this case is like an all-star <laughs> team on both sides. Because uh, there is, I mean, it's not that it doesn't seem like there's a boatload of money. I mean, like there's millions of dollars involved. But this is a, the Ryans are mad, fighting mad. And let's give you an idea how fighting mad they are. So they hired counsel that argued at the argued was it from Latham and Watkins. A lawyer from Kirkland and Ellis was on the brief. Bob Clifford was on the brief, and he argued a portion of the argument. And they had uh, Justice, uh, former Justice Robert Thomas of the Power Rogers Power Rogers firm on the brief. Not to be outdone, the. Defendants had Paul Weiss, one of their lawyers from New York, Jim Filio, one of the uh, best regarded commercial litigators in Chicago, and Justice Kilbride, uh, former Justice Kilbride on the brief. Because why not? They've got a Supreme Court justice. We've got a Supreme Court justice. We've got a giant firm. You've got a giant firm. We've got one of the most well-respected litigators in the city. You've got one of the best litigators in the city. Why not? So that tells you this case is th these people are loaded for bear and they are very, very not happy with each other. Um, this data analytics company that was founded by this fellow Rajaram, uh, he goes to the Ryans and the Ryans are, if you aren't familiar, uh, they're major benefactors of Northwestern University. Um, they, uh, you know, they, they own Aon, they own Aon. This is where they made their, their billions. Um, and they are leaders in, in the Chicago community. So Rajaram goes to them, and through one of their investment vehicles, they invest a million and a half dollars. And then at a certain point, he the company is doing well, and he wants to purchase the money, purchase it back, and he buys it back for like $9 million. Not, not a bad return. The company goes, not a bad return <laughs> by any measure. In, 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 in what, like two years? Two years? They get they get six hundred percent or something like that. It's not a very long. I mean, obviously a high risk investment to be sure. And you know, this business startups like this go south all the time. This one doesn't. This one does well, does very well, and does even better after they uh, they buy back the stock. And there are some emails, and 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 uh, Clifford mentions those in the oral in his portion of the oral argument. He says, you know, we do this e discovery, and we find out all these admissions and emails, and it's amazing what these people say. And this guy, basically, their 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 uh, what's the their take on some of these emails is Rajaram is bragging that he took the the Ryan's for a for a ride, and now I'm going to go back to them and because I want them to invest in my next thing because I got another business I'm starting and I want them to invest in this thing. Now, who knows if that happened? Um, the so when they negotiated this agreement, um, the Ryan or the um, they were represented by one was represented by Cooley and another was represented by uh, another large law firm. Cooley was also on on yep. the brief, 
another very large law firm. So very, I'm sorry, Sidley. Sidley represented the Ryans and Cooley represented the um, the um, Rajaram and the company. Sidley did not appear on the brief. Uh, so they got replaced by somebody, uh, likely Latham. But anyway, they, uh, you have really sophisticated parties, really good lawyers. They write what is described in the oral argument as not a very long uh, repurchase agreement governed by Delaware law that has a statement that says, you're not relying on anything we've told you. Here's all we've told you. And you're not relying on anything else. And oh, by the way, there's a complete release of any claim. And the plaintiffs say, that that's great. And you can't do that. And then we've got four cases that say you can't do that. And the, and the defendant comes back, well, we got four cases that say we can. <laughs> and they both are saying, your cases don't say what you say they say. And the other one says, your cases don't say what you say they say. And here we have the Illinois Supreme Court trying to work out what Delaware law is. And apparently there's a case where Illinois courts have said, we think this is, we predict this circumstance and we think this is the right outcome. And Delaware courts have said, yeah, you're right about that. Plaintiff says, no, <laughs> you've got that case wrong. It's just, it's a, it is a mess. Uh, it'll be fascinating to read this, this, uh, this opinion. The appellate court opinion was essentially along the lines of, we think Rajaram's a really bad guy. He did a really bad thing and compared him both at oral argument and in the opinion to Bernie Madoff in reverse. That is the reverse aspect of this is that as opposed to Madoff's scheme that was going in the tank, Rajaram's business was doing very well. We want to get it back so we can keep the money for ourselves. Um, so that's why it was called the reverse Bernie Madoff. Uh, we'll see what the, both bad, if true, that this was if this is fraud, you know, Madoff was doing fraud, and the allegation is that uh, Rajaram was doing fraud. Um, a very interesting uh, argument, and when you've got, well, I mean, the briefing in this is really high level. These people really know what they're really know the law, and they they really excellent lawyering um, in a case where there's a lot at stake brought beyond this case because these kind how these reliance clauses work and how specific you have to have and whether you need magic words which you don't and and what the, the is is important going forward for how you do these kinds of uh, these kinds of investments because if you can't trust what you're being told then you have a real chill on capital markets uh, even private private equity markets like this so Dan, what were your thoughts on the case? I agree with everything you said. I, I think that this case demonstrates, you know, in the briefs and the arguments, as you said, uh, when you have really high-powered legal teams, you know, they're, they're going to find every case, right? And and it just shows that even a state like Delaware, which is well-known for its kind of corporate law, right? You know, that's the kind of the mecca for, uh, for corporate law that different times and different facts create different uh, different outcomes and uh, this will be very fascinating to read this opinion and, and what they what the what the bench determines was most uh, you know most valid in their mind and uh, so it'll be it'll be an interesting case and uh, it uh, and, and you know the the, the the like you said, I don't know if the parties invested if if Ryan invested in the second thing. So we may see this in some other context because it would be similar language if they 
that went through the same steps, you know, I would, I would, I would be surprised maybe because, you know, you'd think that would come out somewhere, but, but we'll see. Yeah. Who, who knows? It's, it's, don't trust this Raj Rob guy. Anymore, nah. So uh, I don't know if he's, I don't know if it, what he did was wrong or not, <laughs> but at least the Ryan's don't trust. Him, right. So with that, we will turn our focus to COVID VI uh, litigation. Uh, one decision this week, Dan, of some note, uh, although not in the United States. Dan, why don't you sure, the, uh, the Ireland's highest court uh, ordered coverage under under a, a policy over there for, uh, I believe it was a group of restaurants. Um, and the Ireland highest court, you know, was uh, uh, been involved, if, if you follow uh, Privacy Shield at all, uh, Max Schrems is... Uh, you know, the, the Ireland highest court is the one that's invalidated the various privacy shields. Um, so uh, an interesting case, like you said, different different uh, things. We've seen a couple of other, Australia, I think at one point had, had uh, determined coverage, uh, but different policy forums, different, different uh, case law, different jurisdictions. So um, nothing to my knowledge, as we talked about last week, uh, it's pretty quiet in the, on the U.S. front. Uh, as far as I can tell, um, we may we, we may see some state supreme courts come out with some decisions, you know, in the coming months. But it's been pretty quiet. I think there's not a not a lot of uh, not a lot of activity on that front right now. That's true. So that brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong. We're we are 179 and a half, 35 and a half, and 10. Um, I have Danny have us down as two and one this week. I thought we did pain versus encompass. We may have. I think we're only one. That, that may be right. I, I, yeah, I think we did. Yeah, you know, the 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 uh, document that I looked at, I don't know that we updated it fully from last week. So I think it's one and one. I think we did cover pain. So one and one, and we had Kelly versus Williams. Uh, that The Kelly in that is R. Kelly. Dan, why don't you tell us about the, the continued adventures yeah. Yeah. of one Robert Sylvester Kelly. Yeah, so in the, in this case, I think we talked about it. Uh, the, the the circuit courts uh, had had uh, denied uh, R. Kelly's petition to vacate the default judgment uh, was affirmed because the defendant failed to raise a meritorious defense and establish due diligence. Due diligence. This is one of the uh, many cases against R. Kelly that's that's been filed, uh, both civil and criminal. I think there's some cases that uh, come in or in process again. I, I know I saw last week some some more information about R. Kelly and, and uh, what's going on. So uh, continued uh, uh, woes for... Uh, well, this... Th- just So we put a ribbon on this. There's a case that the Supreme Court took, the Illinois Supreme Court took last week that involves his Sony royalties. Right. And there's, there's competing... There's two competing judgment creditors, one of whom is the plaintiff in this case, who is trying to take first in line on his Sony royalties. And that case was was taken by the Supreme Court. So that that judgment that they're trying to uh, get lives on um, and are so, trying to collect on lives on. Uh, Kelly doesn't have the money to file the bond to stay collection proceedings. So the collection proceedings go on. And I can tell you, the lawyer representing Williams is as aggressive as they come. Um, and so uh, he, he will, he is, he's going to go get every penny he can 
I have no I, doubt I agree. Uh, that that is what he's going to do. The other thing that's most interesting about this case from my perspective is this is something that I was not entirely aware of, despite having written on, on Section 1401 of the Code of Civil Procedure, is that the meritorious defense of statute of limitations that had been raised and rejected on a prior motion to dismiss could not form the basis of a meritorious defense on a 1401 petition. Uh, if it had been raised, which suggests that if it had been raised for the, four, the first time in the 1401 petition, might it might have been a meritorious defense to, to vacate the default judgment. But given that it had it had been raised and rejected, it, it doesn't count. I thought that was very interesting. Um, which brings us to our next case, which we got wrong, which is State of Jack Logan versus City of South Bend. This is, if you recall, the case that um, gay, uh, that came that occurred during the presidential election when Pete Buttigieg had to run back to the city of South Bend for a town hall with a uh, very unhappy populace following the shooting. This is the case where the police officer has his body cam off about a minute or so after he shoots the, de- the, the, the deceased. He turns his body cam on and says, he threw a knife at me, so I shot him, which the plaintiff argued meant that the guy was unarmed when you shot him. I understand that he threw a knife at you. He shouldn't throw a knife at you, but that doesn't mean you get to shoot him once he doesn't have any doesn't have any weapons. Uh, and that didn't work. And I I think the lineup is here is very important. This was a unanimous decision by the panel. Even just Judge Jackson Akawumi joined with the uh, with the other ju- judges. It didn't seem that was a route she was willing to go at oral argument. It's a very short yep. opinion, but essentially says you don't have enough, Mr. Plaintiff. I, I, we had, we got this one wrong. I, I I'm shocked by this, by yep. this ruling. I, I don't get how a jury doesn't get to decide how this issue of what it means to say he threw a knife at me, so I shot him. Um, don't throw knives at cops. Agreed, but don't shoot unarmed people. I think those are should be two relatively uncontroversial topics, but apparently well, not. The, um, juries don't get to decide that one. I really yeah, and they close this by saying the fact that many shootings by police eliminated an important source of evidence is troubling, and a reminder that this is the case where uh, the police camera was not on until uh, so at some point well after the shooting took place, and he was calling uh, for nine one one. So. Um, we, we, you know, again, um, the, the, and, and there's there's a lot of inferences that could be drawn in favor of the plaintiff here, and they weren't drawn in their favor, as should no. be the case. Um, I, I, I'm not a big fan of this ruling, but that's yep. the ruling. Um, which brings us to our prediction, sure to go wrong for this yep. week, Dan. Um, so we have Lee versus Wheeland. This is going to be a, a firm, firm for right? sure. Yeah, I, I want well, to for sure. I think it's yeah, well, I think <laughs> nothing's for sure. And these next two, I, <laughs> <laughs> these these next two are are really difficult. Um, I, I I think this I think the county wins on the FOIA case. I I don't think that the, they're going to make the county go rummage through all the records of the Stroger Hospital and trying to find all the gunshot walk-in gunshot victims. I, I don't think they're going to make them do that. I think that's right. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, I think on this, the, the argument of whether or not it's disclosable, you know, 
they, they, I think the county probably loses on, but I think it's that, that they don't keep records is the argument that's, a, you know, they don't have to go on a, a search expedition through each record to figure out which ones are disclosable. Which brings us to Walworth. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact it's at summary judgment really favors the plaintiff. But I understand, and I'm very sympathetic to the defendant's position. You signed an agreement that said you weren't relying on anything we told you. And they went so far as to say, that was fraud. You told us you weren't relying on anything. Now you turn up and you show up in court five years later and you say you were. So right. which is it? Okay. Um, I am tempted to punt, but no. I, I, I'm going to say affirm. I'm going to say the appellate court gets affirmed. Even though I don't like the ruling. I think that's I'll go with happen. that. I agree. We can't punt on everything, so. <laughs> so, that, no, we can't. No, no, that's that's not the game. That's not fair. That's not fair. So that brings us to our rule of the week. Dan, you dug this one up, as so often you do. Uh, tell us about the rule of the yeah, week. Yeah, LinkedIn is, is, is frequently is the case. Uh, we have a lot of people that both Pat and I follow that are just excellent uh, on appellate work. And one is Corey Webster. He uh, addresses California Ninth Circuit a lot. And we wouldn't have this segment if it weren't. Nah, I mean, he, he and he has some just great posts. So, again, if you're if you're not following him on LinkedIn, if you're on LinkedIn, you should consider it if you do anything in appellate, even if you're not in the Ninth Circuit, because, again, he, he just has some fascinating uh, uh, things about the court uh, and about some cases out there. So the question is, this is a multi-factor test. Um, and he raises the question and his post says, who loves multi-factor legal standards? Not Ninth Circuit Judge Ken Lee. And a decision addressing who is a broker under the Securities Exchange Act. Judge Lee wrote for a unanimous panel. But the interesting part is his separate concurrence decrying multi-factor tests. Judge Lee argues that multi-factor tests undermine predictability. And especially when the factors are non-exclusive, give judges too much discretion. Uh, he says the concurrence is short and worth reading in full, and it is. It's very short. A couple of notable uh, snippets. When a multi-factor test allows judges to pick the factors they prefer and discard or ignore the ones they don't, it may seem more like a fantasy football draft than the rule of law. In short, a non-exclusive multi-factor test too often allows judges to decide based largely on their gut feelings. It is a fancy and dressed-up version of it. I know it when I see it test. And so that's Judge Lee. Um, I mean, some, some would argue that judges do that anyway, right? That they uh, get to, to they, they get to the end result and figure out the way to justify it. Uh, that's a, uh, an argument for another day. But just interesting, uh, we see this in the Ninth Circuit. We see it occasionally in other, Pat and I have talked about this, where the judge who writes the majority unanimous opinion sometimes concurs for some reason. It's, uh, you know, until the last few years, I don't remember ever seeing that. It's kind of an unusual thing, right? If you're in the unit, why not just put it in the majority? But it's it's kind of their own kind of offshoot of the actual uh, decision that they're they're reaching. So, an interesting uh, view by Judge Lee. Well, let's just say that it doesn't seem just to, it doesn't seem that uh, Judge Lee's favorite justice was definitely not Stephen. Right. Uh, who is noted for the multi-factor, non-exclusive test as a way of deciding things, followed shortly by Anthony Kennedy. He didn't like no. either one of them. 
They're, you know, the, the kings of the multi-factor tests. Uh, Kennedy. That's Obama. right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> squishy. Very squishy. Very squishy. And it's, it's... So with that, uh, we will... I was just going to say, speaking of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, Justice Jackson got off to a rousing start this week. And at one point for three pages of the record uh, in the Merrill case, uh, she spoke uh, without interruption. So she may be inheriting a little bit of the briar kind of long. (laughs) There may be a question inside of a, a, a statement. Yeah, I, I think, you know, while we're, since you brought it up, uh, that might have been my term. She was off to a rousing start. It was. Uh, she seems to be less in the mold of the truly inquisitive that many times Justice Breyer was. I mean, I don't know how, I t- I'll take him at his word that he was genuinely, I don't know how to decide this case. Don't take anything from what I'm asking, but I'm wondering about this. Help me out. Um, uh, to use Justice Gorsuch's term, that's a term he uses. Uh, but uh, it's more in the line of the way Justice Sotomayor asked questions, which is taking a position and setting out a position. And and, 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 just, and just so we're, we're clear, uh, that's certainly how Justice Alito asked questions of, the, of whoever's representing the criminal defendant before them. Yeah. Uh, that is how he, uh, he's never found, the government has never done anything wrong. Uh, neither has the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, according to Justice Alito, and that's how he asked questions of the advocates as well. Is it's not like it's just the those on the, those more uh, liberal justices that do that, but she was very much an advocate uh, in, in the Merrill case in particular uh, this week. But we'll talk about those cases um, and the Sackett case probably as well, um, where she was uh, she and uh, Justice Gorsuch were having a tête-à-tête vis a vis. The, uh, using the ju- using the advocate as their intermediary um, during the government's argument. So that was fun. Um, so with that, we'll take our leave and thank everybody for joining us this week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. Have a great week. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.